There are some people in this world who, when you're around them, you're pretty convinced that they're completely detached from all reality. Meaning, uh, let me take you back. Uh, I could probably use yesterday's game, but I did not know um, how it was going to end up. So I will introduce another game. Years ago, back in the 80s, Denver was playing Cleveland Browns. They were in the playoffs. Denver was behind. They kicked the ball off, punted it, and Denver got the ball at the two-yard line. Time was short. And uh, they were huddled up in the end zone. Again, they're at the two-yard line. They got 98 yards to go, and they're behind. In that huddle, as the story is told, one of the linemen, Keith Bishop, looks into the eye of every guy there, and then he says this, gentlemen, we have them right where we want them. Dave Stuttered, who was another lineman, thought to himself, did not say anything, Bishop, are you kidding me? There are some people that just are detached from reality. doesn't matter what the score is, they're in. Yesterday, I was in reality. When it was 31.10, I went and took a shower, got ready for, to come down to the service last night. I was gone. I was like, you know what? I've had enough depression. I deal with difficult things all the time. I don't need to inflict this kind of pain on myself. I left. I went in, took a shower. It was a long one. Carrie came in and said, honey, beavers just scored. <laughs> they got forever. I stayed a little bit longer. It was a long shower. Showers invigorate me. And so when you're depressed, I have a long shower. She comes in again. Hey, they scored again. And I'm like, hey, I better get out of the shower and go watch this thing. (laughs) I quit. Why? Because I'm what they would call a realist. I'm not a pessimist. My wife and I have this fight all the time. (laughs) So honey, you're being a pessimist. No, I'm a realist. I got my eyes open. The reality is there are some people who just, they have no concept of the context that they're in. And I say that affectionately. There are others in real life, meaning it's not that football is not real life, but it's really a game. At the end of the day, it has no eternal consequences. But there are other people who kind of fall on the side of realism or maybe even at times the melancholy side. Uh, when I got into ministry 40 some about 40 years ago, um, the world was, it, it, the United States was a better place morally. In 40 years, we've slid. There are things that I hear about just uh, overall d- kind of depression, suicide. Uh, 40 years ago when I got into ministry, um, the reality is Uh, Only 24% of children born into African-American families were born into a single parent family. Today, over 70%. You could see that same trace no matter what ethnic group you use. Chinese, you could use Asian, you could use uh, American, the same thing. We, We don't value marriage at all anymore in our culture. It's not that no one gets married. It's just we're pushing it off and we see it less as a value. Uh, we have all of the gender issues and all of the, the dysphoria. And, and it's like there's a point that you look at and think, wow, 
missions, I've been involved in missions for all my life. When I went to church, I went to church every Sunday night in our church. And uh, Jean uh, was one of the office uh, ladies. And she faithfully, every Sunday night, she brought cards for all of our missionaries. And we signed birthday cards. I think by the time I graduated from high school, I'd probably signed 500 to 1,000 birthday cards to missionaries. I knew every one of them. I knew where they were serving. In fact, it's kind of cool because one of the the couples that Carrie and I are associated with, um, that's the daughter of two of the missionaries that I just kind of wrote happy birthday every year. And now we're involved in supporting their kids. I've been involved in missions all my life. And so the reality is today, 4,000 children, they tell me, statistically are going to die. Most of them apart from Christ because of starvation. We're now crushed over 8 billion people. And the fact is there are more people being born every day than we can ever possibly reach. And sometimes when I look at that, I wonder, are we ever going to win? Are we, are we ever going to win? In the middle of COVID, they projected that 35% of senior pastors are going to resign. I thought that's way too high. They're crazy. They don't know senior pastors. The reality is that's exactly what's happening across the board. We're going to close 10,000 churches this year in the United States alone. And sometimes I look at that stuff and I think, man, are, are we ever going to win? And what you need periodically is to find a person who's completely detached from reality. Meaning, they don't care what the score is. It's irrelevant, the statistics. They're going to run their race and they're going to run it with everything they've got. Yesterday, my guess is somebody on that Beaver team had the ability to tell them, don't look at the score. And it's those kinds of individuals I find most compelling. Paul is one of them. If you threw statistics at Paul, he would say, I don't care. It's not that he didn't care about the 4,000 children. It's not that he didn't care about certain things. He just simply never allowed his life in terms of energy and passion and direction and assignment to ever be dictated by virtually any statistic. And he tells him in this chapter, and this to me is one of the most inspiring chapters in the Bible. Starting in verse 19, he lists five different times. I am in this thing to win. I don't care what the stats are. I don't care what you tell me. I don't care how many churches we're going to close. I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jew, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. So that is to win those under the law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I will stop at nothing. To do what? To win. You might consider Paul a fanatic. And he was. And here's the challenge. He expects you to be the same. He really does. He expects you to be the same kind of person who understands that there are winners and there are people who just walk through life. And he wants every fiber of your being to be a winner. And it takes a few things that Paul talks about. Number one, you have to have passion. 
Paul reaches into the Olympic world to talk and he says, there are only, there's only one person that's going to win. And when I run this race, I run to win. It's called passion. It's not built upon money. I know a number of years ago, and, and I want to be careful, it is a little dicey to use this illustration, but because Tiger Woods has kind of done some things that, that have hurt his life. But I was fascinated by this young kid who came on the golf scene and virtually changed all of the PGA. Like him or hate him, he was a person driven really at the end of the day, not by money, because he had tons of money. It, he could have stopped and never spent all of his money. His grandkids could be the most irresponsible grandkids in the world, and they still couldn't spend all of his money. But what drove him and what altered the PGA was the way he approached the game of golf with his discipline, with his athletic commitment, with his working out. He changed virtually everyone's life and how they approached it. Single-handedly, I think the most significant influence. I understand he did some bad things. I want to talk about the good that he did. Passion. Paul reaches into the Greek world. Why? Because they knew it. They were Greek. They lived in Corinth. They were all about the Olympics. We measure our time. If you look back at, you know, we say the year's 2022. That's measured by what? A.D. after Christ. Or, you know, it was B.C. before Christ and A.D. after Christ. And the fact is, is all of our schedule, all of our time is measured by 2022. By the birth of Christ. Jews don't measure to Christ. They measure to what? Creation. They've marked it at somewhere around 37 B.C., 3700 B.C. And that's where, how they measure time. The Romans measure time from the beginning of the Roman Empire. Greeks measure time from the last Olympics to the next. That's how passionate they were. And the Corinthian church, they were in the middle of a place that even celebrated every three years. There was this... Ismanian games that would happen in Corinth. Now, as Paul's writing this, he takes a gargantuan risk. He does. Because the Jews hated the Olympics. They boycotted them. They wouldn't go near them. And for two reasons. Number one is because all of the athletes competed in the nude. And they didn't want anything to do with that. And the reality is the story was, probably not true, but the, the story was that a vast majority of the athletes were gay. So they wouldn't have anything to do with it. So Paul reaches in to this Greek world and says to them, I live my life like your Greek athletes, like your Olympians. I run just like them. I box just like them. I discipline myself just like them. Why? Because passion is that thing that gets you up in the morning. Passion is that thing that helps you overcome resistance. Passion is that thing that drives you when it's 3110 and you don't give a rip about the score. You go out onto the field and you think, just like Keith Bishop, we've got them right where we want them. Passion is that thing that makes you a fanatic. Because Paul understands and God understands the world's never going to be changed by lackadaisical people. It just won't. It won't be changed 
by people who act like water and choose the path of least resistance. The world is changed by fanatics. The world is changed by people who have passion in them, who understand that there's a motivation worth giving their life to. The passion of a winner is the thing that drives you. But the motivation of the winner is a person who understands that you're called by God and commissioned by God. And to do anything other than be obedient to God is to be derelict. Paul speaks to them in verse 16 and he says, Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast. The reason is because I'm compelled to preach. I'm commissioned. Now most of us never use that term commissioning. Unless you've been in the military and then you understand. When you're commissioned, you're ordered. You have specific orders that have a beginning date. And you report to that. And if you don't report to that, you're uh, missing in action. And there are consequences. Not only is there a beginning date, but there is a location that you're sent to. You go to basic training, then you have your first assignment, and it goes on from there. And when you go there, you always have an assignment. You have a specific task. And anyone that's ever been commissioned understands that, and that's the language that Paul uses. I have been commissioned by God. I got a starting point. Where does it start for all of us? In in particular, it starts the day that we trust Christ. But for Paul, there was another date that I think stood out in his mind. See, he got saved and he was kind of discipled by Barnabas. And for nine years, the scripture tells us that Paul was teaching and improving in his understanding of Christ. And then in Antioch, they were there and Paul and Barnabas had linked arms and the church sent them out. And at that point, Paul is commissioned by God. And God said, Paul, I understand you're a Jew. I understand you understand the Jewish life. You've lived the Jewish life. You were the Pharisee of the Pharisees, but I don't want you reaching Jews. I'm going to send you to the Greeks. Now, in all honesty, I think there was a lot of people, if you were to just look at it humanly, that would be a lot better. I mean, it's like, you know, if you're a recovering drug alcohol, you know, drug addiction counselor, you're probably going to work really well with those who are addicted to drugs. Why? You know their journey. You know their lifestyle. So for Paul, who was a Pharisee, it would have been marvelous for God to send him to the Jews. It's not that Paul didn't love the Jews. He tells us in Romans 9, 10, and 11, I love them. I pray for them. Pray that their hearts would be made jealous by what God is doing in the Gentiles. But God sent him and he commissioned him. And he sent them on three tours of duty. Three trips, all to Gentile locations. To Corinth, to Thessalonica, to the Galatian region. And the fact is, God commissions you and me. We don't use that language. We don't think that way. We should. We think that way about pastors. And sometimes we think that way about missionaries. They they were commissioned or they were called. And when did you receive your calling? I've had that question asked me a hundred times. The vast majority of people never look you in the eye and say, when were you called by God? Well, I wasn't called. I work for the school district. I wasn't called by God. I work for the hospital. Paul's trying to help us understand you were commissioned. You have a starting date. It's the day you got saved. You have a place. It's here. 
God hasn't called you to reach Alaska. God hasn't called you to reach Hawaii, though some of you wish he did. (laughs) But the fact is, God's called us here. And you're every bit as much commissioned to this region, to your family, to your neighborhood, to where you work, as any missionary that has been sent anywhere. They may be sent to the Philippines. God sent you here. And because of that, you not only have a commissioning, you have an obligation. Paul says again in verse 16, he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to you if you do not fulfill your calling. Now you can look at that and say, well, so Paul's kind of feeling like, wow, I got to go do this. I don't think that's the spirit of Paul at all. In fact, I would liken it more to the reality of how a person would feel if there was an individual who cured, you know, discovered the cure for cancer or discovered the cure for HIV or in the middle of COVID discovered the cure for the virus. He didn't have to get vaccinated. I can cure you. And if that person existed in any one of those areas, they would be driven to the top, flown to Washington, D.C., given virtually a red carpet put out for them, and they would not for a moment moment not for a moment run home and try and keep their invention a secret not one of them you and i can't imagine a person discovering the cure for cancer and running home and keeping the cure to themselves in fact honestly if you found a person who discovered the cure for cancer and they kept it for themselves you would think you are the cruelest derelict in the world you have sentenced every person that's going to die of cancer if you know the cure and you hold it to yourself that's the way I think Paul felt I've been forgiven by Christ I know the gospel I'm going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. I'm not going to spend one minute in hell. And woe to me. It would be the crime of the century, Paul says, if I were to be silent and disregard God's commissioning and act as if their lives didn't matter and that hell didn't exist. The reason why Paul could overcome a church that was criticizing him, or the reason why Paul could overcome a group of people that were saying, you know, Paul, we're not really sure that you're an apostle, not really sure you should be teaching the way you are. And, and to be quite honest with you, Paul, you don't take any money for preaching. And, and so we're kind of wondering if you even think you're worthy. And against all of that, Paul overcame it. The motivation of a winner overcomes at times the fear that people will laugh at us or reject us. Or they will call us a fanatic. Or they will say something like, you know, Christianity is full of and you can finish out whatever word you want to put in there. So sometimes we go silent. In fact, strangely, they tell me that 98% of Christians won't share the gospel this year. 
It means that 98% of Christians feel no specific commissioning of God and no check in their spirit. Woe is me. If I can hang around my entire family for the whole year and never once share the gospel. The motivation comes when I understand I've stood before God and he says, Mark, I have an assignment for you. I have an assignment for you and I've given you a region. I've given you a place and I've given you a family and I've given you neighbors. They're yours. I don't live where you live. They're not my assignment. They're yours. I didn't sit around the table that you sat around for Thanksgiving. That family's yours. They're your assignment. You're going to go to work tomorrow. Some of you are going to go to work today. I don't work where you work. I don't go to the grocery store you go to. You go to a different Ace Hardware. You have different friends. You have different assignment. You have different region. And God expects you to own that. He doesn't want you to shove it off on somebody else. He doesn't want you to excuse it. I'm busy. They wouldn't understand. They're not receptive to the gospel. We've got all of these things. And Paul says, if you want to win, then you got to deal with this issue of motivation. God has called you. And you have an obligation. And therefore, there's a sacrifice that you must be willing to make. That's really where Paul starts in chapter 9. They're throwing lobs at him. Things like, you know, I don't really think you're an apostle. Um, things like you don't take you know, wages for this, so I don't think you're a legitimate pastor. And Paul comes to them and says, you know, I want to talk to you about what I'm willing to give up or what I've given up, the sacrifices I've made. And if you want to be a winner, if you want to be a person that wins people to Christ, you're going to have to make sacrifices, you will. Paul starts off with, um, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. This is my defense. Don't I have the right to food and drink? He's picking up that argument that came from the last chapter where they were talking about meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul is saying, I don't care. I can go down to the local temple. I do not care what God they worship. I don't care what God this cow got butchered in front of. Let me tell you what. When I buy that cow, I'm buying beef. I don't care. But if it gets in the way of me being able to share the gospel with this group of people, I'm out. I don't need to go to the temple. I'll become a vegan for the name of Jesus. He doesn't care. He's not recommending it. Praise God. With all due respect to you who called to vegan lifestyle, I pray for you. The fact is, he goes, if, if I need to give that up to be able to reach these people, I'm out. He goes to another area that, man, it really hits me. Am I not worthy do I not have the right to take a believing wife along with those like the apostles of the Lord's brothers and, and Cephas? This, this hits hard because I, I, I would suggest to you that probably the second best gift I've ever been given in my life other than Jesus Christ is my wife. 
I am convinced I would not be anything where I'm at apart from her. And to give Carrie up, to say, I will give her up. I will give the whole married life, my children, my grandchildren, I'll give them all up if it means that I can win more people to Christ. Paul says, I will. I'll give it all up. He wasn't single because he didn't like women. He wasn't single because, as some in the progressive movement want to suggest that Paul was was homosexual. Ah, no, that's not in the text at all. He was single because he knew that if I get married, it's not a good play to say to your wife, I love you, I'll see you in three years. Comes back, hey, I get a weekend. And then I'm going to go on another tour and to go the first 10 years of your marriage and probably end up spending maybe, what, a month with her? No. He said, I can't do that. I can't do that to a woman. It's not fair to her. And so therefore, it's not that I don't want to get married. He said, it's the calling that matters that much to me. The lost matter that much to me. And he's saying, is I am willing to sacrifice all of that. And he did. He goes on to argue, he says, hey, if the law of Moses tells us that if an oxen plows your field, you should feed the oxen. And if a temple worker works in the temple, that person should get to eat. Paul is just simply making the statement, I am worthy of the wage, but keep it. I don't need it. I'll sacrifice it all. I think for some of us, we have to wrestle with where am I willing to sacrifice They tell me that after 18 months, the average Christian, after 18 months of walking with Christ, they have no non-Christian friends. You and I are going to have a hard time leading people to Christ if we're never available to them. If we're never around them. And we filled our lives up with really good things. I know some folks that are in like sometimes three and four Bible studies. I wonder honestly, how can you ever apply that much? But what I do know, if your entire life is filled up with godliness stuff, I guarantee you, there's no Christians that are in your life, non-Christians that are in your life. If every Friday night you've got a date with your Christian friends, if for every Sunday afternoon you got a date with your Christian friends, then friends, how are you ever going to spend enough time to get to know the anger and the wounds and the difficulty of a non-Christian who lives next to you, maybe works with you, but you simply don't have the time for them? Probably a wise thing for most of us to do is to look at our life and cut out about a half of the church things that we do. Now, please don't cut it out and add it with your pleasure seeking. I'm not against pleasure. I'm not. Take vacations. Take a lot of them. But where in my life am I willing to say, this is for the lost? I'm willing to give up my Wife, I'm willing to give up my freedoms. I'm willing to give up, Paul said, the pay. Why? Because I am that 
driven to see people come to Christ. I don't know what God is going to ask you to do, but I know if you want to be a winner, if you want to be the person who can lead people to Christ, can celebrate with them, can baptize them, then you're going to have to be willing to say yes to God when he says, I have some areas in your life that I want you to sacrifice. And for most of us, time is the most precious thing we own. Way more important than probably money. It's our time. And I have to be willing to sacrifice that. Because if I have the conviction of a winner, then I have to be willing to say what Paul said. It's probably most succinctly given to us in chapter 9, verse 22. To the weak, I became weak. Who's that? It's the person who needs more laws, doesn't enjoy the freedom. Maybe they can't drink. Maybe they, they can't eat in a certain place. Paul says they, they, they can't eat food sacrificed to idols. The weak were the, the people who needed laws. Like when Paul took Timothy with him and they were going to certain regions and uh, he told Timothy, Timothy, we're going to go to some areas where there's going to be some Jewish people. And so to be honest with you, I don't want your life to be a stumbling block for them. So go get circumcised. Now for Paul, that's not a huge sacrifice. For Timothy, you have to be all in. You really do. You have to be in at that age. He's a young man. This is not an eight-day-old baby. This is a young man who's lived his life, and he's been hearing from the Apostle Paul preaching about don't fall back into Judaizing and don't fall back into the laws. And then Paul says, hey, go get circumcised. For what reason? For those who are under the law, I will become like them. Why? So that I can win them to Christ. Verse 22, Paul makes this, and it's a really, I think, a very radical statement. He says, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Let me give that to you in modern language. I will do anything short of sin to win people to Christ. Anything. Haddon told me this years ago, and he said, Mark, he says, the greatest threat to your future success is your current success. That has haunted me. Because in the church, we fall in love with our methods. We do. That's why the average church in the United States makes it one generation, 35 years. Why? Because they fall in love with their music. They fall in love with whatever the case may be. And their thinking is this way. And, and it doesn't sound horrible, but this is the way they think. You know what? We're kind of a nice church. We're, people should come and, and if they come and visit us, they'll like us. We are the second friendliest church in town. Don't want to be the first. That's just too overbearing. But we're the second friendliest church. And if they come, they'll like us. If they, if they come, they'll like our music. If they come, they'll enjoy what we have. And they, we think that way. If they come and become like us, they will like us. Do you notice the language of Paul? I have become. Not they became, but I have become. 
the most dangerous threat to our current church's absolute blessing of God is that we fall in love with the way we do church, not the methods or the message, but the methods, the way we do church, the culture about us, and then we fall in love with it and we begin to fight for it and we begin to get resistant when another generation comes and says, hey, let's do something different. No, it was good enough for me. It was good enough for my mama. It was good enough for my grandpa. And that's what God blessed. And when we begin to think that way, we're completely opposite of Paul. Because he says, I'm going into Jewish territory. Timothy, get circumcised. I'm going into Gentile territory. Titus, don't get circumcised. I'm going into an area where the philosophers dominate. I will speak like a philosopher. I will understand their gods. I will speak about the issues that they worship. I will know their language. I will present the gospel. The message never changes. But Paul was a genius at contextualizing his method. And I think it comes down to the heart. Am I willing to become all things to all people so that I can win them? Or do I think like I think a lot of churches and Christians? If they come and join us, they'll find out that we're nice people and they'll like us. They just need to be invited. Maybe you and I need to go. Maybe the sacrifice that I need is to cut out a significant portion of what I think is important Christian stuff and spend more time in their world learning their language so that I might share my God with them. Paul never tells us, do everything you can to convert them to your culture. He says, you must be willing to do anything short of sin to reach them. Somebody in the crowd who didn't like Paul's language because it was a little convicting, raised their hand and said, Paul, uh, we all know who saves people, right? Paul, it's not you. You've never saved a person in your life. What's all this winning garbage? God's the winner. God's the one who wins people to Christ. God's the one who draws them. It's the Holy Spirit. Paul kind of chuckles and he goes, oh, another one of you Calvinists. Oh, to hide behind such a theological curtain. Is Paul confused about who saves people? Not for a minute. Is Paul confused about the work of the Holy Spirit? No. Is Paul confused about the fact that it is the Holy Spirit, John 16, that draws them and convicts them? Not at all. Is Paul confused about the 4,000 children that are going to die today of starvation? No. He's just willing to say, dear friends, I'm not trying to replace God. I just understand that if they never have a messenger that goes into their world and proclaims the gospel, they're never going to have an opportunity. So I live as if it's all up to me. 
I don't think Paul's confused for a moment about God's role in salvation. He's also not confused about his role. The fact is, I know there are 8 billion people in the world and I know there are more being born every day than we'll ever reach. And at some point, I'm going to have to trust God with them. But God hasn't asked me to be responsible for the 4,000 children that are going to die today of starvation. You know what he's asked me to be responsible for? Greg and Cindy and Charity and the people in my world that God says, I've commissioned you. I've put you in a neighborhood. I've put you in a family. I've led you to a city. Own it. And that's what God wants to ask you. Are you willing to own the commissioning that God has sent to you? Do we even think that way? And are you willing and ready to say, I will give up anything. I will give up my cherished worship. If we have to sing rap to reach people for Christ, I'm in. Now, for those of you who know me, that's the biggest sacrifice I could ever think of. But am I willing? Am I willing to put down everything? And I think you and I will be. When we understand that when Paul talks about winning, he's talking about the difference between heaven and hell. And he's talking about people. He's not talking about games. And so his conviction is this. I will do anything. Anything short of sin to win people to Christ.